Hi everybody and welcome back to the Fit Vision Podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined by David Little. David, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh Mark, it's great to be here. I've been really looking forward to it. David, it's certainly fair to say that you are a thought leader in the areas of organizational dynamics, conflict resolution and transformational culture. You are CEO of the TCM Group, founding president of the Institute of Organizational Dynamics and author of two books, Managing Conflict and the recently published Transformational Culture, which I highly recommend to our listeners and looking forward to diving deeper into that today with yourself. You've also spent the last 30 years reframing HR systems, management processes, and leadership behaviors. And I look forward to exploring that journey with you also. I'm wondering if we could begin our conversation today by getting an insight into where it all started for you within the industry. Uh, Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Mark, for inviting me to be part of the conversation today. I, mean, I suppose my, my, my primary focus is helping to create a space whereby we can engage in meaningful dialogue with each other in our organisations and using dialogue as a tool for resolving deep-rooted complex issues in our relationships, in our systems and, and also in our, in our cultures. I also see dialogue as a really powerful way of, of bringing people together, uh, unifying people and tackling some of those complex issues around prejudice and bullying, harassment, some of those really difficult issues in the workplace. So my background, where I kind of started from was really in the late 80s and the early 90s. I went and studied a degree in race relations. I was very interested in the areas of exclusion, inclusion, and also the nature of racism, how it happens, why it happens, and its impact on an individual level, but also on a societal level. And having completed my degree, I went to work in uh, in Leicester in the East Midlands uh, in England, And that work was really about helping to bring communities together, particularly through regeneration projects. I was using uh, my my role was to sort of ensure community participation in engagement programs. And I saw, Mark, really quite dreadful levels of conflict and violence within communities. Um, And I felt that very little was being done to tackle this. Uh, It was and the responses were generally pretty inadequate. In fact, I might even use the word woefully inadequate, Mark, if I may. So I set up a small charity with a bit of funding from the Home Office and, and our local authority to promote restorative justice and mediation and community disputes. And, and it, grew rap- it grew really rapidly. We were working in schools and I became really interested in the area of restorative justice in the criminal justice system. Started working with, with young kids and, and social behaviour and low level incivility and um, um, uh, criminal activity right the way then up to serious criminal offences and bringing together victims and offenders or doing letter exchanges or face-to-face restorative justice meetings so I was, I was really excited about the idea of mediation and facilitation it's very new very exciting and I was invited by the cabinet office in, in the UK government and two large councils in London to come and bring some of this into those organizations this is back in the early sort of noughties and I studied an MBA at the same time to try and figure out how on earth did an organisation work. And I still haven't figured it out. So if any of your listeners can tell me how organisations work, I'd love to hear from them. Um, but what I did see, Mark, and I know we'll explore this more, is that the levels of conflict, difference, dis- disagreement, quarrels, fights, you know, it goes by many names, in our organisations were significant. And the responses in a great many organisations was pretty much as woefully inadequate as it was in some of the community disputes that I'd seen. The harm, the trauma, the fear, the anxiety, the relationship breakdown. 
the impact on the psychological and physiological well-being for people it was just incredible but no one was doing anything about it so that's where my company tcm group was born and for 20 years we've been going into organizations providing mediators and coaches and facilitators it's just so exciting to do that work but it doesn't take long before you start to look at the systems of the organization and the the kind of look upwards and say what are you doing why are you doing it this way why do you do this to your people and it didn't it doesn't take long before you start to look at some of the hr systems the management processes the leadership behaviors the culture and that's probably where i'm really focused now is working with organizations to create this powerful fair just inclusive sustainable and high performance environment where we treat each other better and as I said at the very beginning, where dialogue is given primacy uh, over retribution, which I know we'll talk about because I'm a massive advocate of moving from retributive systems to more restorative processes. Excellent, David. And, and thanks for giving us that insight there. It's like one of the things and just a little back backstory, I think, for listeners as well. Uh, obviously up around Christmas time was when I was introduced to your book and as many of us did unfortunately I, I was struck down with COVID for a, a week or two over over the Christmas period but what I during that period I got to actually really I, I got through your book I'll be honest in about two days because I was just so engaged in in the different aspects of it and what really resonated with me was the work that we do in Fit Vision is very much on the wellness side but we often find ourselves, if we're met with somebody who has your views and your mindset in terms of what we're talking about today, all of a sudden our programs are far more effective. But we often hit that, you know, that bump, if you like, where old systems are at play and wellness is only a, a tick the box exercise, if you like. So I'm very excited having you on to speak today because I think there's a lot that can be gained for our listeners in, even for example, you mentioned there about restorative justice. Could you give maybe listeners an insight into what we, what you mean by that from a, a corporate context? I'm really excited that you've picked up on that point, Mark. And I think that that connection as well with wellbeing and wellness is so fundamentally important because I see organizations break people and break relationships, often because of their propensity towards a model of justice, which we could define as retributive. Now, this retributive model of justice runs deeply in our society and through our through our organizations, although there is a significant resolution revolution going on at the moment in our in our in our criminal and ju uh, civil justice systems, where we're introducing a more restorative approach, alternative dispute resolution, mediation uh, and, and greater use of dialogue and, and negotiation. However, in the workplace, we've seen very little of this. We're still very focused around the blame, shame, punish approach for dealing with discipline, grievance issues, performance management. There must be someone at fault. And when we investigate the case, we will find out who's at fault. And on the balance of probability, we will be able to uh, exercise a sanction. And in most organizations, the only sanction is dismissal or a threat of dismissal. There tends to be very few other sanctions that are available. So we're really talking about blame, shame, punish, sack, in essence. So this is the paradigm or the environment within which we're working and which justice is delivered. Now, if we just take a step back to us as kids, and I've got three wonderful children, the first time they expressed a value or a belief was when they said this to me, Daddy, it's not fair. <laughs> they've got more of this. They've got more of this. It's not fair. So the first real sense of a principle or a value that they, that they can associate with as a, as a human being is the principle of justice and fairness. 
So we see justice and fairness as being absolutely critical in terms of shaping us as human beings and also within our organisations. Yet we treat justice with disdain in our organisations. We've adopted this retributive system of justice as though it's going to spit out happy people. It doesn't spit out happy people. It spits out sad, angry, frustrated people. It masks underlying issues within our organisations because we don't understand the root cause of many issues. We're simply dealing with the symptoms. And ultimately, as long as it ticks a box to demonstrate in any litigation that we've done something, then retributive justice becomes something of a superficial system by which we can demonstrate in law that we've done the right thing. It isn't about doing the right thing for our people. Conversely, restorative justice or transformative justice, as I'll often refer to it, is about compassion, dialogue. It's about creating a space where two parties can have an open and honest forum to talk, to listen, to hear, to understand, to draw insight and learning, and through that insight and learning and understanding to drive behavioural change. And surely, as I say to many HR uh, directors and chief people officers, surely the policy framework is designed to drive behavioural change. It ain't working as it is. However, when I'm confronted with the impact of my behaviour on another human being, when I truly understand that the words I've used, the email I sent, the behaviours I've engaged in, have a direct impact on that other person as the human being, I then presented with some choices. I can continue that behaviour or I can modify my behaviour. And in over 90% of cases which come through a restorative processes, through a restorative process, the parties redefine, reframe, reshape their behaviours to, to ensure they're fit for purpose for the organisation and fit for purpose for each other. It's a significant shift in the way we think about fairness, justice in our organisations. But to me, it's, it's the future of justice in the workplace. Wow, incredible. And as, as you're speaking there, David, it, I'm reminded, as I think from a wellness and a neuroscience perspective, I'm reminded of even say things like the SCARF model, you know, David Rock's work and the role fairness plays in, in that aspect as well as the other elements. And another piece for me, and you mentioned it recently, another piece I'd recommend for our listeners to check out is your uh, recent Thinkers 50 uh, session that you did. I liked how in that session you talked about from a, a neuroscience perspective, we think about obviously what makes us uh, freeze up, what makes us fearful in an organization. And it is some of those bits that you're talking about there in terms of more on the retributive side versus the restorative side. We are ultimately creating fair cultures if we don't change the way things have always been done. Would, would you agree? And maybe what are your thoughts on that? Uh, massively. I mean, I think, you know, when I'm working with organisations, I mean, it's, it's quite incredible we're having this conversation, Mark, that these conversations aren't happening right now in every organisation up and down the land. I mean, or every, we are being constantly um, presented with, with, with issues around culture, around justice, around policies, procedures, abuses of power. You know, we just have to look at our political leaders, our business leaders, other leaders. They're a big debate. Yeah, the conversation we're having now, to me, needs to be mirrored in organisations. So I would be saying to HR directors and managers and leaders and union representatives and others, listening to this conversation, go to your policy frameworks and just have one simple check. Is this policy likely to invoke a cortisol response, a stressor response in the individual? Or is it likely to generate dialogue, openness, a kind of more... Um, 
constructive dialogue or environment for the parties to work with and release maybe a bit more dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin and endorphins. If your policy framework is generating cortisol, it is likely to generate a more retributive and adversarial and acrimonious environment. Do you want that in your business? And unfortunately, the HR systems, as I see them, the traditional HR systems, and this isn't an indictment on HR, the profession, this is the system that they have in their organizations. Those HR systems worsen relationships. They tear people relationships apart and worsen and contribute significantly to stress, which I think then a wellness program and you know, I'm not going to be disparaging, but fruit and gym membership and all the good stuff, which is important, does not address the root cause of why this stuff is happening in the first place. And the successful businesses of the future will be listening, Mark, to this podcast, hopefully, and saying we've got to do something at source to address some of these underlying factors that we're talking about now. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And I think an actual a really nice step in for our listeners is to start to talk about the transformational culture model that you have developed, which obviously is grounded in areas like positive psychology, restorative justice that we've mentioned, emotional intelligence, as well as aspects that some people may not have heard of before, like nonviolent communication, which again is a fantastic framework to follow to actually create dialogue and, and obviously positive dialogue. Could you unpack the key elements of that model that you've developed for, for our listeners? Thank you. I mean, the first thing I'd say is those principles that you've just described, people may or may not be familiar with them. They're so powerful. They're so important. I would say they are the critical skills that our managers and leaders need now to manage in a really volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous environment, the VUCA environment that we all know uh, and are part of right now. So the skills we've just you've been using, I think, are so fundamentally important. And just to say one thing, Mark, before we get into the problem, they are not soft skills. <laughs> they are tough hard skills to drive tough businesses in tough business conditions and the smart businesses the ones i think who will attract and retain the top talent attract and retain the top customers attract and retain the investment will be those who are deploying those skills rather than some of the perhaps more traditional ones but i just sort of wanted to pick up on what you'd said there but how does it all work well the the, the transformational culture model to, to an extent brings together all of those frameworks that you've just been describing using systems theory. So it looks at the culture and the organization as a system. And that's not to try and create a jargony or, or, or overcomplicating it, but it recognizes that each of these different elements has a connection. We see patterns and trends and relationships between these elements. So the transformational culture model that I've developed um, it comprises three separate but, but, but inter integrated elements. The first one is the development of a transformational culture hub. And what that's saying is really who owns culture in our organization? Well, everyone owns culture and no one owns culture. But actually by bringing everyone together, the union, management, HR, leaders, and other key stakeholders, they can develop the organizational culture in a way and begin to shape and map that organizational culture in a way which is aligned to their core purpose, their strategy, and their vision. So suddenly the transformational culture hub, which is a representation of the business and the organization, begin to shape and craft and develop the culture in a way which is meaningful. And after all, culture is either our greatest asset or our greatest liability, and it seems to be part of the organization which is so infrequently managed. It just seems to me to be surprising we leave it to chance. The smart organizations ain't going to leave this stuff to chance, Mark. They're going to be deliberate in how they do that. And that's the function of the hub. The second element, and I'll run through it relatively quickly because there are, sort of, there are eight 
um, uh, enablers of, of a culture here. But we start off thinking about the values of the organization, the purpose, and using those as a golden thread. You know, no longer value values and all of that stuff that we've heard. Or what's the point of values? Or they're just fancy words on the wall. I get that. I hear that. I understand that. But making the values a really critical part of the entire employee experience and their whole life cycle within the organisation. A clear sense of purpose, which unifies us, driving forward, driving growth, driving success, unified behind a clear, definable sense of purpose. It's fundamental. The second element or the enablers around an evidence-based approach, using data and evidence to drive decision-making. Too much is left to chance on culture. Too much a surgeon, too much um, personality, um, too much charismatic drive and not enough back focus on the evidence of what we're doing, what we're doing well, what we need to change, what we want the future to look like. The third one really is um, a rethink about the HR function, Mark. I think we touched on it already in the conversation to an extent, but moving from an HR function, which are the custodians of a policy framework, which is intrinsically punitive and adversarial towards an HR function, which becomes a people and culture function with four strategic focuses, the development of a people and culture strategy, putting people first, becoming an administration of justice function, which is a really critical role within the organization and driving the cultural changes within the organization. So we see the people and culture and function play a pivotal role in this, in this model. The role of our leaders and managers are absolutely critical. So looking at them, the development of a new justice paradise, so building that in as a key enabler within, within the system. The increasing alignment between well-being, engagement and inclusion. Thinking about sustainability, social justice, social value as outputs, not just shareholder wealth, which is fundamentally important to the successful business, but it's not a duality. We can do shareholder value and social value and stakeholder value. They can be brought together. Again, the successful businesses are merging those three different measures of value and output. It's not to say profit isn't important, but profit hasn't got to be the only focus. And finally, the, one of the key enablers really is thinking about this in terms of brand reputation or risk internally for, for our employees and externally for our customers, investors and other stakeholders. So the final element, and I'll talk very, very briefly on that, uh, Mark, is, is, is the output is what we call the seven C's. And I won't throw, run through all of those seven C's, but it's around courage, curiosity, collaboration, better communication. And they become the output of the culture which then affect back in the turbocharged culture. So that's a really quick run through <laughs> of the model. So forgive me for, 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 for hopefully reasonable brevity, but hopefully that's given a bit of a shape to, to what that looks like. Uh, a model that I'm sure took many years to develop and you've described it there in, in just a few minutes. But what I will do is I will obviously link some information on that. And again, just highlighting the information in the, the latest book that you have for our listeners, I think there's, you, you go into each of those in detail and I, I would highly recommend for any people in culture or HR individuals or even leaders and managers, there's a lot to be gained from, from reading through those chapters in particular. Uh, there's actually so much there that we can nearly drill down into. One that really stands out for me, David, is when we think of the idea of, of the people and culture function, and we think of this idea around building a culture based on the principles you're speaking about i'm sure for the past two years the individuals listening in who are hr or pnc 
I'm sure they're feeling the strain of the last two years. They're feeling quite fatigued, quite burnt out. And in a lot of ways, it's because it's left to, to them, individ those individuals, sorry, to drive that culture. How, in your opinion, do we start to move it away? And I know this model will certainly encapsulate that, but how can we start to maybe implement practical actions to take it away from solely being the responsibility of HR or PNC to it being a company-wide initiative, if you like, or, or responsibility? That's a really important question. I mean, HR can play a really pivotal role as what I call the culture catalysts. And the people and culture function can be the catalysts to create the environment within the organization where culture, conflict resolution, all of the stuff we're talking about now becomes a big conversation in the, in the organization. And to do that, the HR function needs to release itself and needs to release its vice-like grip on the traditional employee handbook and the traditional policy frameworks that is so closely attached with HR. And once HR can do that, and I know it's a big challenge for many in HR because they hold on to this because they see it as a risk to let go. It's not a risk. It's a massive opportunity for growth and for development, almost reshaping and redefining of the very essence of what it means to be a human resources professional. So it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity. And I see so many HR professionals now taking that on board. So as soon as they're able to do that, they can build a coalition. Now, we know that the best work is done in the line. But I speak to managers, Mark, who they went on a on a training course in 1996 on handling grievances and it's the one one piece of training they've been on so we're not supporting our managers to have the conversations they need we're not giving them the tools that you were describing earlier marshall rosenberg's nonviolent communication positive psychology the ability to be empathetic to have to to, to, to have insight to have deep understanding that emotional intelligence this, these are critical so that people and culture function can then also mobilize the resource to support the conversations in the line, quality conversations in the line. And the, and the really nice, I think a really big change in, in the way that the, the cultural model works is when things go wrong, when errors are made, when mistakes happen and when failures occur, because that's going to happen, rather than deploying a policy framework or ignoring it because it's easier to to ignore it we deploy coaching mentoring facilitation so again that people and culture function are the powerhouse of dialogue inclusivity and positive engagement when support is required similarly that people and culture function uh, bringing the managers in are also bringing in our union reps or employee representatives reshaping that partnership between employee reps we, we can see today already there is a threat of significant industri industrial relations um, uh, and collective disputes on our railways here in, in, in the UK. And I think, I predict it's going to get worse as we see the cost of living crunch and the cost of, uh, cost of living uh, crisis um, deepening, that we will see further industrial relations problems. HR and unions need to get around the table now, not when they go into ballot for strike action. You know, I ran, my team ran in Royal Mail's industrial relations unit for two years. We embedded a resolution centre in Royal Mail, centred around predictive and proactive problem solving. And in the two years we were working with Royal Mail, we didn't have one single strike day lost for Royal Mail. And that's because a new social contract was being formed in Royal Mail based on respect, dialogue, communication. So the second part, I think, of it is about reshaping the social contract and the partnership between unions and management. The third element... So I've talked about managers, I've talked about the employees and the employee reps. The third element is to look at our leadership. 
and really working with our leaders and bringing them in around the table and rethinking leadership's behavior and how they are responding. I know we'll talk a little bit about the, the leadership because I cover that a lot in my, in, the, in my book, but thinking about the role of our leaders in shaping and crafting the culture which will drive success. And that to me creates an environment whereby change can begin to happen in a really exciting um, and a really innovative way. Brilliant, David. And it's it. I like you talked about the third aspect there when we were talking about leadership. And one thing that stood out to me was that I like the acronym you used around actions, interactions, and reactions in terms of leaders and managers and being mindful of that. And I wonder if you could give our listeners a little bit of insight into what's meant by that and also maybe how the way we are working at the moment, uh, obviously many organizations remaining in a, in a hybrid environment, if you like, how those actions, uh, interactions and reactions may need to be managed or facilitated uh, differently now. Fantastic. I think just my, my, my view on hybrid is it's a flourishing and thriving environment where we can be the best versions of ourselves. And I call it a cake, eat your, get each, um, have your cake and cake eat, and eat it. it working environment. I really do, because I think we can do the best from working from home while getting the best from the camaraderie and fe fellowship and collaboration with working with our colleagues in the office. The model of hybrid working to me is the future of work. So our managers and leaders, I think, um, can, can play a really <clears throat> important role in shaping that. So how we act, how we interact, how we react is, the, is, is what is the air that we create. Now, a leader and managers whisper to others is a shout. They hear this loud. It defines the character of the organization. For managers, the way we treat it defines the climate of our team and our department. For our leaders, the way that they communicate, the way that they handle challenging issues during the difficult times and the good times creates the, the culture. And of course, culture and climate connect, but are different. So the actions, interactions and reactions are the outward behaviours that we see. So when we see our leaders and managers um, acting and interacting and reacting in a way which is stressful, corrosive, adversarial, blaming, negative, harmful, putting people down, um, ignoring issues, then that very quickly permeates through the culture of the organisation. To drive cultural change, our, our leaders and managers need to understand that to change the culture, they need to change their behaviours. And that means that they need to think about how they act in the good times and in the bad, how they interact with colleagues, customers and others, and how they react or respond to circumstances in a way which is more constructive, more functional and more supportive, more compassionate, more empathetic. And by changing the air that they breathe out, the air that we, the air that we breathe in, that can then become a defining feature of the culture of the organisation. And some people say to me, David, changing culture is too difficult. It's like a big oil tanker that takes years to turn around. And yeah, that might be true, but we can also change the culture of the organization one conversation at a time. And it's on managers and leaders to redefine how they act, interact and react to change the nature of the conversation that then can drive the culture change. And do you know something as well? It doesn't take weeks, months, years. We don't have to turn the oil tanker. I can choose to change the way I act, interact and react on the next call I have. And that's how quickly we can begin to change culture. It doesn't have to be as complicated and as difficult as perhaps I think some people might believe it is. I couldn't agree more. And, and I think as well, David, from what you've said there, 
I think it actually offers a lot of solace to listeners as well, because I think if we do find ourselves in a in a culture which is, you know, always expecting more uh, as the energy levels continue to decrease, obviously that is draining. It's also for a manager and leader who who does have a concerning mindset in terms of employee well-being, performance, development. I think that becomes quite difficult for for that individual. And you, you mentioned things like obviously brand and reputational risk etc i think not only do people maybe leave an organization like that and move to another organization but even when we talk about cross-functional people maybe don't want to move into a certain team or into a certain section of a business because they see it as being just that you know high demand very low care for well-being etc and when we think about moving forward in in these key areas I, I like the idea of the air and the actions, interactions and reactions and being more mindful of that. But when it comes to actually managing conflict, you know, day to day conflict across the organization, how can we get better at, for example, delivering difficult feedback within teams and accepting sometimes that uh, that what we might call constructive dissent, if you like? I think people often see feedback as a way of giving you information which you're probably not going to like or you might do something with. I, I think the way that our whole approach to feedback to me is is often quite jarring and potentially quite sets up quite an adversary. I, I see things like difficult conversations training. I don't like that term because it doesn't have to be a difficult conversation. So as a manager, the best way to give an employee feedback or a colleague feedback is simply this. As your manager, how am I doing? Please give me some feedback. I welcome feedback. Feedback is a gift. Now, if you give me some feedback and say, David, you're 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 not performing to the way I'd like. Um, how very dare you? That's terrible. I'm going to respond defensively and negatively and deny the feedback and not uh, not not respond to that and potentially not change. Then I'm setting out the tone for how our organisation is going to give and receive feedback. If, on the other hand, they thank you for that feedback. I value that. That gives me an opportunity for me to grow and learn. And how can we work together to ensure that as your manager, I am able to fulfill my function effectively and collaboratively. Then we're starting to see feedback as a tool to bring us together and an opportunity to look forward in terms of how we can work collaboratively to achieve whatever the objectives are that we set. And then this wonderful opportunity presents itself. Thank you very much for that. I really appreciate it. There's a few things I'd like to be able to share with you that I've been observing that I think will help us to be able to work together more effectively and constructively for the future. I've already role modeled how to respond non-defensively. I've demonstrated the ability to listen and actively listen through my questioning, my curiosity. I've identified that feedback thing then feed into to feeding forward and think about future action plans. And I've deliberately created a space for us to work collaboratively to achieve those outcomes rather than it being transactional, which is I'm telling you, you do it, I show, I tell you do. And I can bring in some coaching skills there around, around showing and telling. So I've created this environment through that very short example there of a positive space for us to give and receive feedback. So when I'm giving you feedback as a colleague or as an employee or member of my team, you're able to then pick up those cues. We know as human beings, we mimic, we can begin to mimic each other. We can pick up those cues and clues. And that then shapes the tone for that conversation. As a manager, if I have eight line reports and I'm using that technique, that's eight, that's an aggregate of eight people. That again starts to shape the climate, which then begins to shape 
the, the culture. So it's on me as a manager to recognize that how I act, interact and react, to, to, to use the phrase again, in that environment isn't just about me responding, it's about me being very proactive in the way that I create the psychologically safe space or the space, the conditions, let's call it crafting the conditions for that conversation to happen. And wow, when managers are able to have those conversations, they can move mountains, Mark, vis-a-vis -vis the conversations, which I'm sure a great many of, you, of your listeners will be familiar with, where those feedback sessions just feel futile or unpleasant or acrimonious or stressful. And we've all been there. You know, we all understand that. But it doesn't help us to move forward. And that's that moving forward that we're all working towards. Yes, and those conversations, obviously, the, the wrong way to do them, if you like, they generally are infrequent and uh, penciled in three months in advance. And we, we sit down around the table and we're probably looking at metrics on a, on a sheet before we're actually even trying to engage in terms of uh, on the personal side. And already I'm bored. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I did, you know I did, what a dry and tedious way of engaging with another human being to help that human. Surely the role of the manager is to help our people to be the most brilliant versions of themselves. And, you know, targets and Excel spreadsheets, these are all important. You can't dis disregard them. But you as a human being, with everything that makes you brilliant, your feelings, your hopes, your goals, your aspirations, your values, your beliefs, your character, your whole experience, that's far more effective. And surely as a manager, my job is to unlock that inner brilliance and allow you to shine and then aggregate all of that brilliance to, to help the organisation to function effectively. And I, I don't know, that hopefully it doesn't sound trite, but surely that's the role of the manager above driving rigid, bureaucratic, complex performance systems, which probably everyone's just like, so what? What are your views, David, then on, because I find that really curious, some of the teams that we would work with, uh, you'll see technical specialists who've been promoted up through the organization, and I might get the opportunity to work with that individual as well as some of their, their team members. And generally what you will see is that that individual is maybe not spending that time to create that personal connection. But listen, the organization makes an allowance because they are technically very good at what they do. And God forbid, if we were to let that person go or reprimand that person, they may leave and then we're, we're, we've lost our superstar, if you like. What are your views on that in terms of organizations and promoting what you've said there, you know, coaching skills, etc., and not allowing our technical experts to really run riot because obviously eventually that will impact our, our culture massively? That's a really, really important question. I'm seeing a real shift from hierarchical organisations to networked organisations. I'm going to go back to my previous question around the role of the HR function. Again, if, we, if HR can really, really begin to redefine itself, it could become a very central feature of the network. So in that environment whereby we're supporting someone who's got technical expertise, but maybe lacks some of those skills around people management, if we can create a networked environment whereby I can draw down the skills of the line managers to support you in that role, whether it's coaching from somewhere else in the organization, some mentoring support through the HR function or elsewhere, then as a line manager who may also have certain skills and also some limitations, I'm able to provide a networked response to that problem, a networked solution. If, however, it's just me as a manager and, and that individual trying to address those, those issues transactionally face-to-face, -face, just the two of us or, or virtually, it becomes much harder. 
And I think for me, we're seeing more organisations beginning to reject that hierarchical, structured, upwards and downwards communication towards a more, a greater propensity to bring in the right resources at the right time to create the space for the right conversations to happen. And that's really exciting. And it does mean there's a redefining of some of those roles. It means there's some blurring of boundaries. I mean, we're seeing it in our own organisation, the blurring of boundaries between customers and consultants and employees. The boundaries are being blurred all over the place. But what it does, if you can harness this, is it creates wonderful opportunities to create a space whereby we can get the right people in the room with all of the skills and knowledge and capability to have the right conversations to move the dial forward. And that, to me, again, is a great opportunity for the HR function to become the enabler of that networked organisation. Is that where aspects like you've mentioned, like mediation, play such a vital a vital role? Fundamentally, I mean, I think mediation is just a shorthand for dialogue. Dialogue is the critical feature of a successful network organization. Communication, dialogue, dialogue is is a two way flow of communication between two individuals or groups of individuals. Hearing, understanding, assimilating, acting, learning, insight, innovation, creativity, growth. So there's a kind of different elements to our yeah. dialogue. Mediation is an assisted method of driving dialogue because the parties need someone in the room with them. So mediation is a way of delivering dialogue where the parties have been unable for whatever reason to engage in dialogue themselves. To me, it's about dialogue. And unfortunately, when I look in organisations, very progressive organisations, they're putting lovely stuff up on LinkedIn and winning awards and doing amazing stuff and talking about all of the great environment that we're in. But when you actually start to unpack and look underneath the surface, particularly around some of the issues around conflict resolution, performance management, absence management, grievance resolution, so on and so forth, it's the antithesis of progressive. It's the antithesis of, of dialogue. It's about building walls and barriers. It's rigidity. It's bureaucracy. It's complexity. It's about blame, shame and punish retribution. So by building dialogue into the networked organisation as a system for resolving issues with all of the mobilising all those resources and that support, then that's what opens up these opportunities. And mediation, you know, I'm a mediator through and through, Mark. I believe passionately that mediation can and should be a much bigger feature in our organisations. But as I said, it's a shorthand for dialogue. It's just someone in the room with people. What's really important is getting people talking and getting people listening. Yeah, because even... it by facilitating that all of a sudden you're maybe reducing the the power dynamics that are at play and i've heard you mention this before but this idea of obviously really working on our ability to listen to the other person's uh, perspective and i think at times leaders and managers not all leaders and managers but leaders and managers as you've said yourself their whisper is like a shout for 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 colleagues for team members and it's maybe that idea of, I don't know if you've come across Nancy Klein's work and the thinking environment, our, our last podcast actually focused in on, on that and how we can obviously implement that. But I've, I've even brought that type of facilitation into some of the sessions that we do ourselves at Fit Vision. And you just see it enables a leader or manager to be in the session, but the other people not feel like oh i can't say this because my leader or manager is sitting across from me it helps to create that environment of psychological safety where we do feel like we can speak up and then we can action on some of these things that are coming up in the conversation i mean 
I'd love to be in some of your sessions, Mark. They sound absolutely fantastic. And I'm sure are just inspiring because it's exactly the kind of environment that can drive growth. And I think one of the challenges that we, we, we see, I think, and certainly we've seen it since we can't blame social media purely. And obviously social media plays a really important role in, in our society. However, we have seen, I think, personally, a decline in the ability to disagree with each other. It very quickly moves to being a personal attack, very quickly becomes um, disrupt disruptive and adversarial, and people opting out of it, or some people sort of almost thriving in that environment. And I think we've perhaps, in some respects, lost the language of disagreement and dissent. And I think what I sounds to me like you're doing in your sessions is equipping people with the tools and skills they need to be able to disagree, but to disagree well to be able to do so in a way which protects the self-esteem of the other while allowing them to communicate their needs, goals and aspirations in a way which is meaningful to them. And as soon as you create that environment, people love it. You know, the manager can hear what's being said without feeling that they're being completely lambasted and, and put down and, and, and treated with disrespect. The employees feel heard and all the cathartic benefit that goes with it. And then you create this rich space um, a primordial soup within that environment you've created whereby ideas can come up through it as opposed to doing nothing, ignoring it, hope it, hope it goes away, or just when it explodes, do some basic restructuring and very expensive management consultants coming in and restructuring the team. So I celebrate what you've just described because I think more and more teams need to be able to give that, be given that opportunity to, to do just that. And it's not a sign of weakness to do what you've just described as a sign of strength. Absolutely, you've got the leader then maybe expressing some of their vulnerabilities. And we've seen it with some of the companies we work with. We've seen some in incredibly impactful leaders who are sharing that message of, you know, here are my failures, here's where I've tripped up in the past. And listen, it's going to happen to us all. They're really promoting that idea of, you know, fail forward, if you like, uh, which I think is very powerful for, for ambitious individuals, because if we think about it, that's what we're trying to cultivate. We're trying to really nurture people's development. And one of the ways we can do that is really by creating that psychologically safe environment where there's no stories being created in our head. And we've seen a lot of that in the last two years, people staying on later than they really have to and work. And it's not because their manager's driving it, it's because they're driving themselves maybe that little bit too much. And that obviously reduces that recovery time, which we need in order to be able to perform sustainably. So I think what we're speaking about here really creates boundaries, boundaries which we can then implement and create a good work-life balance. So, so vitally important to be having those types of conversations. Absolutely. I mean, going back to your point about vulnerability for our leaders as well, you know, I've sat in many, many team uh, events, team facilitations, whether it's a great team, a good team who want to become great or a perhaps a more dis, dis, team in distress, should I say, perhaps we want to redress, address some of those. And the best outcomes, the ones that deliver the best outcome, whatever the stage of the journey the team is on, is the one where the leader becomes very authentic and does demonstrate that vulnerability. Because as soon as the leader and the manager is able to do that, people can connect with them on a human level. And in some respects, as they connect with each other on a more human level, then you start to redevelop and redefine boundaries which are more human and, and, and humane, rather than, and I think, again, I, I don't know where it comes from, Mark, maybe your, maybe your listeners can help me a bit here, but where, where do we become fearful of talking about our feelings and our emotions in the workplace? Do the feelings feel like the big F word that no one's yes. about to say? And I think 
I don't know why it's happened. I'm sure it's just there's a gradual environment where perhaps we've we've lost the ability to do that. And I'm really, I think it sounds very much aligned to, to yourself, on a mission to create spaces where people can talk about those F words, failure, feelings, fights, forgiveness, flourish, flow, some of those big, powerful F words that I think are not talked about. But when they are, that allows us to reshape the workplace in a really, I'm going to use the term again, humanizing way, because those are human characteristics that have perhaps been designed out and need to be redesigned back in to that networked environment that I was talking about earlier. Creates a function effectively. Another yeah. word, function. <laughs> <laughs> As you're speaking there, David, what really stands out to me is from the, for again, just reflecting back from the neuroscience perspective and our neurobiology, like we do tend to want to avoid conflict because if we think about it from a, a from a primitive brain perspective we don't want to be the outsider in the tribe we don't want to be the person who's disagreeing with the other so i think and you i like how you highlighted the fact that they're not soft skills these things that we're speaking about and actually i don't know where that ever came from that they are soft skills i understand the you know the meaning behind it but they're critical skills because Otherwise, we find ourselves, as you say, in environments where we can't give feedback, we can't talk about our failures. We can't even turn around to our manager and say, listen, I, I'm actually struggling at the moment. I need a little bit of support. So I think you're right. It needs to be worked in. And I think for our listeners, if, it, if this is resonating with them, I think a great place to start for them is to look at your transformational model and start to look at what aspects of that may need to be targeted for them to start to make some changes in in those areas we're speaking about no thank you for that mark and i think didn't, didn't, i mean and sometimes these require complex structural change but sometimes they require very simple change i think it kind of perhaps draws together much of what we're talking about because you know, giving your people a jolly good listening to really hearing what they're saying it doesn't cost us a penny to to go and do that you haven't got to be on some fancy qualification and accreditation to be able to go and learn how to do that you can go and do that right now and listening to people and understanding and listening to to understand rather than listening to defend so really good quality listening doesn't cost a single penny and actually whenever i've been into a mediation i can say there are there are three things that people will say to me whether it's a mediation between two parties or a big collective dispute the first one is for the first time someone's really listened to me I'm thinking, well, that can't be the case, but it is. The second one is why on earth didn't we do this days, weeks, months, years earlier? Because we can see as a result of it, things just don't get dealt with. And the third one is it's nowhere near as bad as I thought it was going to be. Because as soon as we start listening and talking, we connect as human beings. It's not keyboard warriors on an email or formal processes or investigative stuff. It's just two people or more talking to each other. And those are really important messages. So we can begin to drive those changes right now, today. We can choose to do those things today or we can choose not to. But again, as, I, as I've said earlier, the smart companies, the smart organisations, the successful organisations are choosing those approaches right now. They're choosing compassion. They're choosing dialogue. And they're the organisations that I believe and I predict will be the organisations that thrive long into the future. I couldn't agree more with you again on that, David. I think those three points as well that you so are, uh, eloquently articulated, I think they're nice takeaways for our, our listeners. As we're coming to the end of our, our episode and 
we've gotten so much from you today i have to say i'm sure our listeners are going to be thinking first of all where do i buy that book and second of all how do i get in touch with david to come help me in my organization if you'd one piece of wisdom or advice based on and I, you've given us so much already but based on you we see a lot of organizations now having people obviously as we said hybrid environment but there is this aspect of right we're coming in one or two days per week we're working from home two or three days and people will favor coming in some people will favor staying at home how do we continue to build what we're what you're talking about here when that aspect is still a little bit disjointed i'm just curious if you'd have any insights for our listeners to to finish with on that lean into that feeling of it being a bit disjointed that's okay you know, every, not everything can be put in a box. Not every working style, not every person can be put in a box. And if we lean into that and allow us to be more comfortable with that fluidity and perhaps a little bit more fluid, a bit more comfortable with some of that ambiguity, and we do the right thing, we need, you know, our purpose, driving, do the right thing, do no harm to others, do the right thing for others. As long as we're driven by that true belief that our role there as leaders and managers, HR professionals and unions is to create the space where people can thrive and be the best version of themselves. It allows us to be more comfortable perhaps with that more fluid and ambiguous environment. And I think what I would say, my, if, it's, if it's a word of wisdom, I, I don't know how people will judge me, judge it, I suppose, themselves, but my, my wisdom would be lean into that. It's okay. You can't create a policy or a framework or a box for every single thing that goes on in the workplace. And maybe this is a good opportunity to rethink how we handle complexity and ambiguity. And it's it's okay. Don't be afraid of it. It's okay. David, thank you very much. Thank you for those insights you've given us throughout this last hour. I'm sure our listeners are going to take so much from today's episode. I've really enjoyed it, Mark. I'm so grateful for you inviting me. And um, yeah, thank you so much. And I hope, I hope your listeners uh, enjoy it. Thank you. Uh, and I will link all of your information as well, David, where people can find you uh, with the show notes on today's episode. Thank you once again. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Mark. <laughs>